0: If I take care of our managers, they will do a great job in taking care of the clients.
1: Welcome closers, today we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you, this is season three on Profit. I'm your host Jordan Weyla, and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actionable insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage a hundred units or a thousand, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Sweet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today I'm talking with John Ploker, the CEO of North Point Asset Management, which has about 25 offices across the country. North
0: Point manages
1: about a billion dollars in assets. They've been in the market for a while, since 2006. John's built out a significant team, and this is a great episode. We talked about leadership, the actual functional role of John operating at scale with about 150 employees, the mindset shift in growing the company and how his approach to growth had to evolve over time, operational policies and procedures, the function of a centralized back office and the leverage that you can and cannot get from that covered a ton of ground. It was a great interview. Hope you guys enjoy it. Welcome to the show, John.
0: Thank you, Jordan. Well, let's start here. How'd you get into the business? Like many of our colleagues, I entered into the business in and around the recession. We started out in San Francisco, but not in property management. Actually, we got going as a private equity firm buying buildings in the San Francisco Bay Area. Fortunately, we were doing that without leverage. And so when we went into 2008 and 2009 holding assets ourselves, uh, we were able to weather that. But because of the slowdown, you know, no one wanted to, to sell and buildings weren't, weren't selling. The investors were reluctant to buy. And so some of the the private equity fund investors into into our company had existing assets and reached out to us asking if we would manage those we agreed to do it. And we found over the next year or two that we were pretty good at it. And so we started to expand from there. Uh, so that's kind of how we got into it. Got it. So how did that feel in retrospect, kind of getting into it with, with
1: the timing of that happening
0: with the market? I mean, that had to be a bit of a sucker punch. I think everyone was unclear as to how, how long and how deep the recession was going to last. I think there was just a lot of uncertainty. Here we were, as an investor, doing okay because of the lack of leverage, but we had this management expertise that was exploding. I mean, back then, it was not that hard to scale a property management business. You take that in contrast to, say, today, where it's a very good market. Uh, It's a a whole different set of skill sets uh, and approach to do it. But that's how we got started. So, what does the business look like
1: today? Give me some rough parameters around headcount. We mentioned twenty-five offices. What's the operation look like?
0: Well, the first thing I would say is that there was a point at which I'd say maybe two thousand nine, two thousand ten, where we decided we were going to make it a, a professional approach to property management. We weren't just going to do this because the opportunity existed, or in lieu of um, of larger investments. We were going to make this a real Thriving business. And so when we did that, we set the business up from its foundation with the plan to have it scale uh, across the United States. So it was set up with that in mind. And that really enabled us to quickly grow. Um, so today, to answer your question, we've got, as you mentioned, 25 office locations. Our headcount is about 140 to 160, it fluctuates in that range. And as you mentioned earlier in the show, we've got just about a billion in assets under management.
1: So, what does the structure of the organization look like? Of that headcount, for example, that you quoted, what percentage is local versus in a back office setting?
0: So, we have a board of directors, which um, I chair. You know, we kind of approach the thirty thousand foot view to the company, the strategic decisions, and try to think. You know, instead of working in on the business, that's really its core function. And then uh, we have the executive committee underneath that. I'm the CEO of that executive committee. There's three other members aside from myself, a CFO, a COO, and then a a vice president over marketing. And then underneath them, we have a line of regional managers. Those regional managers are traditionally the brokers. They oversee all of the uh, staff, management, agents that work in the field in the actual offices. And so underneath them, you have associate and senior managers, property managers, and then administrative staff and maintenance technicians. So that's kind of top to bottom how it works. As far as how many people are at the headquarters, uh, it's mainly accountants. And uh, the the executive committee, we have two of us here in Salt Lake City, and then the other two are on each side of the coast. So one in uh, North Carolina, in that office there, and then the other one is Sacramento. And how many regions are there? We've got eight regional managers.
1: The first question I have for you is, what's your commentary and feedback on the promise versus the reality of a centralized back office model? In theory, it's massive efficiency that leads to greater service delivery at a lower expense. Sometimes in execution, it's a lot of top-heavy overhead that brings down profitability for the whole system, even though there are some really strong individual performing markets. What's your take on what that looks like when it's well done?
0: You can't try to create a one-size-fits-all back office uh, because there are just some functions that are more efficiently handled in the region specifically. There have been some trial and error in, in our company trying to figure out which specific functions were best in the location or best back in the, you know, the main headquarter office. As far as specific functions go, obviously accounting. The whole back-end operation of um, our accounting software, whatever accounting software you use, that's handled at the corporate headquarters. Uh, Legal, I've found that a lot of management companies are not sharp enough in their legal. That is a critical point of of being able to get through some of the real difficult trials through growth. But uh, we handle that at the back office as well. What we try to do is make it simple for the managers that are in the field. We don't need them to be an expert in everything. For instance, the legal side of things or the real technical accounting. We don't want them doing that. We want them maximizing their time in the administration of the properties and the leasing out of vacancies.
1: So, there are two things that came up for me as you mentioned that I'm thinking about maintenance and legal. First, with legal, are you talking about landlord tenant law issues, those sorts of things that will get you into trouble with? Uh, Are you talking about trust accounting? What's kind of the surface area of where you're? Your concerns are about how some companies handle the legal aspect of it.
0: What I'm not talking about is the general legal knowledge that any licensed real estate property manager needs to know. So what they teach you as far as state and, and federal laws, everyone needs to know that. And they, they need to you know, continue with continuing education to keep current on those laws. What I'm talking about is when you have a particular situation and a lawsuit is threatened or somehow our liability is being exposed due to something the manager did or a maintenance technician did or the tenant did, those kind of issues need to be evaluated and handled by someone who really understands the law when it comes to litigation.
1: Got it. So this would be a genuine luxury of scale. that You could actually afford a full-time in-house uh, legal representation. That, that makes sense to me. The other question I had was on maintenance. You didn't mention
0: maintenance having anything to do with the back office component? Is that entirely happen on the local level? I know that some of the national groups have a more robust maintenance back office operation. For instance, they might have a vice president of maintenance that oversees some kind of function for the whole group. We do not have that. Most of the maintenance is handled locally. I think part of the reason that we've kept it local is that there's so many moving parts with maintenance. We just never thought that it made sense to try to establish some sort of um, national, somebody handling something in a local region. It's just too many moving parts.
1: When we think about the the emphasis or the flavor of what is unique about North Point, what comes to mind for me is more of of a background in finance and real estate asset management. And that may be a great marketing tagline, but what does that look like in practice in terms of what you're able to offer your clients as opposed to somebody that fell into this business from from being a real estate agent?
0: So there's two sides to answer that. One side is is the actual client that you're managing a property as a third-party manager. And I know that that's what you're more referring to, but I wanted to mention that it also affects the investors. So you've got a client that owns a property. The property managers in the field in our company while they may not have the same financial depth of expertise as as some of us in the the main office do, we do an annual company conference, for instance, where we bring the whole company, get them together because we're so spread out, and uh, you know we build the team and we train. and one of those topics that we really hit on is to understand the mindset of an investor, uh, not just you know their appetites but also the language to speak to them, cap rates, financial returns. Um, internal rates of return, how to calculate these, how to um, build them into the conversations that they have with their clients. So we do take time to try to educate them in that regard. But the truth is, is that if you haven't got you know, a long background in finance, it's very hard to grasp if you're a property manager to the degree that, a, that an investment expert would. They're educated enough to maybe maintain a, a light conversation, maybe not to the degree that, that we in the back office have. Now, the the interesting thing, in contrast, is that I think in the investment world, understanding the converse, the actual ground level management techniques, and all the little nuances that go into managing a property, are just as valuable, and I think are severely lacking when people are making major financial decisions. Interesting.
1: Okay, so this would speak to the the institutional play, the invitation homes, American Home Rentals, some of the larger funds that are managing ten or twenty thousand homes, the street lane, which was just snapped up by the guys over at Brewstock, for example. So those decisions are being made based on some really intense financial analysis. But in terms of the actual management of the portfolio, there may be a gap in that area, because the background is is more of a finance background, as opposed to an operational boots on the background. That's the point you're making.
0: Yeah, in essence, I think so. I think there's kind of three different stages. You have the investor expectations, you know, returns on the investments that they make, and they've kind of got a uh, a conceptualized on paper view of what that investment looks like. And then the next stage is you have the asset managers that are between the investors and the property managers. They have a little better view into what's happening on the ground, but I think what I'm really referring to is the actual property managers that like are actually walking these properties. You know, shaking the hands of tenants, diagnosing maintenance issues. These people have a wealth of knowledge about what to do and what not to do. And we think that's really important. And that's why you know our company has adopted a style to do both investing and management. And we think it benefits both sides. Okay,
1: interesting. So as we've seen over the last decade, single-family returns from an institutional perspective start to, to catch up to multifamily returns as an asset class. What you're saying is that there's always going to be a gap of the actual judgment of the local person that's going to be difficult to roll up into a spreadsheet and a
0: financial model? I think so. I think that that's a fair statement, yeah. Well, some folks
1: would feel like what you're talking about in terms of cap rates, etc., that this would just be like total overkill for them to be providing that to their average client. Their client wouldn't understand it. What's, how do you interact with that that notion?
0: Okay, so, so here's the thing. When we're in a recession, you know, there's a ton of accidental landlords, right? Uh, there's a lot of single-family homeowners that would prefer to sell but can't. So in that environment, no, they probably don't really care as much. Their goal is to uh, meet their mortgage expectations, the costs, maybe make some money if they can, but simply wait it out until the economy recovers, and then they can dispose of the asset However, in an economy like we have right now, it's interesting. It's, It's a very good economy. And so you're seeing a lot less of the accidental landlords. And the opportunity exists much more with the bona fide investors, people that are in the business to accumulate property. Uh, They may not be, you know, an American Homes for Rent or an Invitation Homes that has 20,000 homes. They might be someone who just has five or 10, but that's why they're there. They're not there accidentally. So in, in those situations, you do kind of have to understand how to present opportunities to them. A lot of the properties that we add to our portfolio of management are because we're finding more properties to buy for that investor. So, the, the, the opportunity has changed based on the economic fluctuations. And, and that's why that crowd, they are interested in cap rates. Uh, they are interested in IRRs.
1: Yeah, I love it. So, any of them, you could have your existing client working with you at a broader scale, buying more properties. That's fantastic. The relative to acquisition cost of growing your internal base of revenue and your internal clients versus gaining new ones. It, it's pretty obvious the mathematical advantages there, when we think about focus, when we think about doubling down on the thing that's working, you mentioned a couple of different business units, the management versus the investment, the management, commercial, single family. How do you approach the idea of of focus versus capitalizing upon the opportunities that that fall into your lap?
0: I think that that entrepreneurial spirit, sometimes it's got to have some boundaries. I know that there's a temptation for entrepreneurs to keep chasing opportunities. Well, often they're brilliant, and they identify unique market opportunities. But if you don't ever stick with one, in other words, focus, uh, you really can never capitalize off of it. For us, we try to benefit from both sides of an economy. We're investors, but we're also managers. That same philosophy takes hold not just, you know, at the top level of our company, but all the way down to our managers. I don't think a lot of companies make as much of a focus as we do on both selling the properties that we have under management as well as managing and leasing them. And we do. We really push selling as much as you can. And we think that that's smart at that level too. So when you say push, what, what do you mean by that? you mean like
1: advertising or do you mean like offering like an annual CMA?
0: Like offering an annual CMA. So we are constantly educating our management group on trying to get the clients to let us list their property? This is a great topic.
1: Some folks on the smaller end of the spectrum will say, we want to be management only. We don't have a brokerage and therefore it's easier for us to work with other real estate offices and to get those kind of referrals, et cetera. What you're trading off there, the underlying assumption is that the revenue that you can capture through having a robust brokerage is going to be less than the revenue that can come from third-party management scaled up via these other referral sources. To me, that math oftentimes doesn't make sense. It's it's a false dichotomy, per se. When you think about the revenue contribution of the brokerage side of the business, based on what you're saying, I'm assuming that that's a, that's a meaningful
0: contributor to the overall uh, revenue makeup of the organization. Absolutely. I think that the property manager is kind of in between all things, and they have the opportunity to capitalize on all kinds of different income streams, such as not just management income or leasing income, but maintenance and sales. Those are the four big income streams that re- result. It, it is not easy to, to to create, a, especially a national program that can try to do all of those well, but it is possible.
1: What I think is, as
0: a fiduciary and as a
1: steward, as that higher level service provider that is not a glorified gopher, there is an expectation that you will speak to and have the acumen to speak to a broader life cycle of what the client is going to experience as opposed to being siloed within a specific spot. So talk me through the CMAs. like, how do you, how do you make sure that it's just a given that when a client churns out that you're going to
0: experience that brokerage revenue on the, on the outside. We encourage all of our managers uh, to create an alert within our property wear system. We use property wear that basically tells them about 60 days out that, the tenancy is going to end. And that's kind of their trigger to create the CMA and send it voluntarily to the client. But, you know, I feel like I should add something in here. A really important aspect of our being able to successfully pursue all four of those income streams is that we seek managers that are very dynamic. You know, th- these are generalists. They, they're they not specialists. They're good at a lot of different uh, aspects in real estate. So often, when we recruit we're looking for someone who has sales experience and and that contributes you know they want to they understand it
1: i could see that so do you find yourself
0: hiring folks that
1: have property management in their background as well or no
0: you know what we well certainly we look for the most experienced candidate but what's most important to us is not necessarily uh, the the most experienced person but the best fit and i found uh, you know in our recruiting that uh, when it comes to property management, we're looking for certain characteristics. Not necessarily that they've had a twenty-year career in property management. They may bring with them a lot of bad uh, habits. What we're looking for is, you know, someone who has the right temperament, someone uh, who can handle that level of stress, somebody who is good with the details, you know, the paperwork, but also good with people. And those two very opposite traits are often not found in one person. And that's what I think lends itself to a dynamic individual. They can do both of these things well. And we found that that uh, type of individual is not just good at property management, dealing with conflict, for instance. They're also a salesperson. Salespeople are sometimes not the best at dealing with the mundane and vice versa. And and so, at least for our service offering, it's very important that we hire someone that, that has that unique dynamic.
1: Do you want to network with other grade A entrepreneurs that are ready to talk more than simple day-to-day operations? Are you interested in expanding your business through cutting-edge sales, marketing, and growth strategies? If so, you need to be at the 2019 PM Grow Summit held in April in Austin, Texas. Check out at pmgrowsummit.com. Learn what the difference is between hope and actual results. It's called taking action. That's what we do collectively at the PM Grow Summit by bringing in world-class speakers, world-class attendees. Get more information at pmgrowsummit.com. So let's talk about the systems and the process that these folks are getting plugged into. In my mind, when we think about the tension between process versus policy, there's a real interesting conversation there. We can enable and handle some really dysfunctional policies with great processes, or you can do it in reverse, right? You can simplify your processes by just tightening up on your policies and and your service levels and what you will and won't do. Having achieved scale, how do you balance the unique wants and desires of each client for the need to keep your staff sane and to have uh, a scalable business?
0: There's so much that goes into that question, uh, Jordan. That's a great question. And to break it down, let me try to hit just a couple topics of that because I think there's like 30 that can result in that question. So one thing, something that I believe in is that if you're going to be a successful enterprise as a a CEO, you have to be comfortable with constant evolution of the, the processes and the procedures. What you do at a lower level will not necessarily work scale-wise at a higher level. And so you might have to scrap a whole accounting system for instance. The staff doesn't like going through those cycles. You know, we the the owners are willing to go through the brain damage of it. But they they don't, you know, they don't have that same motivation. And I can't blame them. And so one thing I always tell our staff is listen, we right now know of like 10 things that we should be doing right now. But if we do all of them right now, it'll be total chaos. And so we try to, you know, pick and choose a reasonable amount of improvements in the processes that the rest of the staff can handle and it won't ruin their experience. You know, it's almost like a customer experience, like when someone comes to a movie theater and the second they walk in those doors, the smells, the sights, the technology, you know, every it's a whole customer experience. And and I look at it the same thing for our employees. At least for me as a CEO, I focus a lot more on the experience of our employees than I do the clients. If I take care of our managers, they will do a great job in taking care of the clients. And I think that that's shown in our reputation nationally. If you go to any of our offices and look at the local reviews online, it's overwhelmingly positive. And, and that really has everything to do with those people's actions. So that's one aspect I would answer in response to that question about process.
1: Yeah, sure, so you hire smart people and then you don't tell them what to do, you let them tell you what needs to be done by enabling them and creating a culture of excellence. Totally, totally get that. I would love to hear a little bit more on this idea of policy versus process. Are there any specific Owner policies, ways that you relate to your owners, whether that whether or not they be accidental landlords or investors that own larger or, or larger volume of properties, how do you approach them? 10 people wanting things done 10 different ways, the making of exceptions, are you hard-nosed? Are you flexible? How do you how do you handle that conversation?
0: I found that some companies that are local they can be much more hard-nosed. We as a national company cannot be that way. I, I wouldn't say that everybody on my executive committee is on the same page with this topic. <laughs> I tolerate a lot more flexibility. I think you know somebody at our recent conference in Dallas mentioned something, and I thought it was quite insightful. And that is that you have to constantly educate uh, your clients. Um, that's that's part of this job to help them understand. And so, when we have policies that we we want to be strict to avoid, you know, too many exceptions which slow down the entire organization, we try to approach it with educating the client. Here's why we don't do that any longer, Mr. client. I know we used to do that, but this is the repercussion of us doing this for you. You know, we try to help them understand that it just isn't really in their best interest if we allow so many different exceptions. And if somebody can't, you know, start to understand that logically, then we have to cancel the agreement. You do lose some business due to being more strict, no question about it.
1: So what about the client profile? What do you communicate to your individual market leaders around the types of properties that North Point will and will not manage? What are the bright lines that are in
0: place? We do not have a policy to not manage Section 8, but we generally shy away from it. One way that you can you know, avoid managing Section 8 if you don't want to have to outlaw it, because some laws... Are toying with making it mandatory is you charge fees that if you happen to get it, you're like, great, <laughs> we're charging a very high fee. So a couple things is we we stay out of areas that we feel are are seriously unsafe. We're willing to take on challenges, but if it's I think that this is pretty obvious across the board, and I wouldn't expect any other management company to be different. But we do have a policy that if it isn't in a minimal habitable condition, we're not gonna manage it. Here's another unique one. If a client starts threatening us, they start either threatening lawsuits or, or yelling at us. We have a policy where we make one attempt to reason with them. And, th- and that attempt usually includes, listen, we have to maintain a long relationship here. We can't have this kind of adversarial relationship. That's right. And if they become more adversarial, then our policy is to drop them within 24 hours. And and let me tell you why. That's a very unique one to North Point. We've found that when we tolerate a longer cancellation, let's say 30 days, all it does is give them opportunity to build a case against us. That's one policy that we've adopted recently that we just feel that it's not in anyone's best interest when the, the relationship of trust has gone away.
1: Mm, I, I love that. So if you give them longer notice, they may be more inclined to all of a sudden become a forensic expert in landlord tenant law and accounting, etc.
0: Okay. They'll abuse laws, you know, they'll become adversarial, you know, their, their goal is to actually hurt us. And that's, that doesn't make any sense to stay in. It's interesting on
1: some of the online
0: forums from time to
1: time, you'll see a question that's along the lines of, I've got a I've got an owner client that's really giving me a hard time being extremely difficult. They're asking for change X. I can either handle it this way or handle it that way. What do you think? But the implicit assumption is that they should keep working with this person that's being a total pain in the neck. Your solution is, and this is kind of related to hiring too, right? Is hire slowly, fire fast, is it expunge the system at the point that you know that the relationship is no longer going to be profitable. Totally makes sense to me. Love that answer. I do want to hear a little bit more about growth. When I think about the kind of the pyramid, let's call it Maslow's hierarchy of of entrepreneurship and business, when we think about how owners move through thinking about growth, the first epiphany is that, hey, you know what? Growth actually matters. Sales and marketing is, it's, it's not the same thing as just good service delivery. The initial inclination for small operators is that if you build it, they will come the best service will always win. It sounds nice, but eventually you realize that, you know what, that's a separate skill set. It takes some intentional effort. And so people are willing to spend some time, spend some money. And then the new epiphany comes that sales and marketing is actually very, very different than operations. It's a fundamentally different skill set. What has your journey as an entrepreneur and as a business owner looked like when it comes to growing the business and how you've approached that? From day one to how you approach it now.
0: So, first of all, I completely agree with you. The mindset that if you build it, you know, you build something good that they'll just come, yeah, they'll they'll come over 20 or 30 years. You know, you'll you'll build a mom-pa enterprise, but if you want something professional, something that is gonna thrive, something that is going to beat the competition, it takes smart, proactive business development and growth strategy. It really does. You have to Think of things that your competitors have not thought of. For instance, we use a, a software called Lead Simple. And that, uh, before we adopted that, you know, our process of just managing the client from first initial contact to close took a lot more time. It was hard to do at scale. You know, adopting the right technology, adopting the right processes, um, hiring the right people, investing in a growth mechanism. That can really push your organization is vital if you want to be a top competitor.
1: So, tell me more about what that looks like internally. Do you have somebody responsible for growth in a full time capacity in the C suite?
0: We do. So, Patrick Monahan is a member of our executive committee. He is uh, the executive vice president over business development. Now, I take a personal interest in it as well. So, you have both of us who spend a lot of time in reviewing our processes, hiring the right people. And staying agile. It's a constant moving market, especially in today's world. Well, in not only today's world, but also our company, where we are an organic growth oriented company. There's a lot of our competitors that are growing by acquisition. I think that's a great way to grow. We've just chosen to grow by organic growth. So, what we've found is that the market is changing like on a month to month basis throughout the year. Uh, statistics that we see, for instance, in January of 2018 don't necessarily match January of 2017. I'm not sure that I have the answer for that, but the point is, is we have to keep watching it very closely, and we're shifting our strategy, our approach all the time. So um, that's who we have at the top, the C-suite. Um, we've got seven business development managers, and and they are you know trained to be just hounding these leads constantly we're always in for the kill. We can sense from how our closings going, both the interest at the general public level, as well as what our competitors are doing. And we're, we're a moving target. And so that, that's some of our strategy. I love it, man. I love
1: that, that answer. I, I feed off of that energy. So seven business development managers, do they have regions? Are they centralized? Well, I know somewhat behind the scenes, so I know that they are centralized. What's the gap between that and the the boots on the ground approach? This is a really interesting one for me because I've seen a number of organizations that have started doing the multi-site thing, but they've resisted centralizing that back office function with sales. What caused you to go down that path and how far along were you before you made that transition?
0: So, I mean, I I feel like this hops back to the beginning of our conversation when we were talking about what responsibilities are held at the local level versus the the corporate level. Our managers, you know, they want to do the business development themselves. I I get that constantly, like, hey, just let me handle the leads. And and that's another policy. Going back to policy, we don't allow that. And it's because we know that once they get too many properties, they're not going to be able to do that well. And they try to do everything and we we won't let them. It takes educating and communication, not just the client, but to our own team and having to help them see, listen, we've been doing this for well over a decade. We know exactly what's gonna happen once you get too busy. And so we try to limit what they can do so that what they do, they do the best in their industry. So we keep those separate. I
1: love that. So to me it's about professionalizing and operationalizing. Sales and marketing. Those of you listening to the podcast have heard me say this a million times by now. But where it's relevant here is by acknowledging the skill set and communicating to the property manager. I'm sure you. I'm sure you could handle that responsibility. There's no doubt. But the problem is that your best is not good enough because we're not looking for your best. is a specific skill set around having, in in my opinion, and having a activity based model. The activity-based model, meaning that doing your best to call people back and, hey, it happens to be six hours or it was the next day you were slammed, I get it, no problem. But is that acceptable? And if it's not acceptable, why? Is it because there are actually significant mathematical implications to calling somebody back within 24 hours versus five minutes? Yes, there is. And that's why we do that. That The maturity to get to the point where sales marketing actually gets the uh, the credit that it deserves is a real mental shift in a lot of operationally focused organizations. I love you guys have gone down that path. What does the structure look like with the business de- development managers? Who manages them?
0: What, what kind of reporting do you look at? How do you manage that department? We hold a quarterly meeting with the whole business development team, which comprises of me, Patrick Monahan, and the seven business development leaders managers. And in that meeting, you know, we'll, we'll at that time uh, convey new policy if we're going to shift some things because of whatever's happened in the last quarter. We also kind of cross-pollinate ideas. These are people that are handling business development all over the country. They stumble upon different methods that are working. In, in that context, you're able to get a really good sense as to how the whole country is doing. So that's one thing that we do. We do the quarterly meeting. Everything is processed through Lead Simple. Um, our CRM, and so it's very easy to, in you know, for me or Patrick, to log in and see exactly at any one moment how they're doing. And if, if we start to see that you know things aren't closing, inevitably there's something wrong, and it's usually because they're quoting too high, you know, or something to that effect. That's kind of the the sales and marketing piece. You have the advertising. And the more technical side, we've got some outsourced help on some of our marketing campaigns. Those need to be watched. I found that it really, Jordan, it just takes a lot of attention. It just has been my experience. Nothing just happens well. (laughs) If you leave something alone, it inevitably starts to break down. That's great. Yeah, totally agree. But it's fair to
1: say that the reward with sales and marketing is worth it. When you think about the economic contribution that the growth department can make to the organization as opposed to operations, it's worth investing. It's worth developing that skill set. I think there are probably still some gaps that some of my listeners are wondering about. How far do your BDMs take it? Will they go the way all the way through the close? How do they handle an in-person visit to the property? How does that work?
0: Yeah, I mean, the business development manager is held fully responsible from start to close. You can't hand it off to anybody else because, you know, no one's going to care enough to call it 10 times a day if you must. But as far as, uh, you know, appointments, business business development managers have online access to the calendars of all the managers so they can instantly see, you know, their availability. We don't try to say, oh, I'm going to have, you know, such and such manager call you and set up an appointment. Right then and there, we get the appointment set. It's a joint effort. The manager who's going to that appointment, they've got to be just as good of a salesperson. I mean, they got to sell them right then and there. But it's not handoff. The BDM is still responsible. They are absolutely still responsible. It's frustrating when a manager is not able to close in the appointment. I, I think that the number one success factor once they get them on the phone is to get an appointment set. It really is a joint effort. If the, if the manager is lacking or the business development manager is lacking, then it won't work. They both have to be strong. Totally makes sense. So you've described some of
1: your responsibilities. You take an interest, an active interest in the growth piece of the business. If you wrote a job description for John Ploker, the CEO, what does that look like?
0: I would break that down into probably four areas. One is financial. So I'm, I'm, you know, I keep my eye on our financial performance. You know, a successful company. You you have to not just grow revenues, but you also have to have a, a very fiscally conservative model that's supporting it. And so, I'm I'm constantly watching our finances. The second thing would be uh, recruiting. I'm very involved in who we recruit. Of the 150 to 60 people that we have, I've probably been involved at some level with 90% of those. And it's it's because, you know, if we get that right, then it solves a lot of issues. The, the next one would be the business development that we went over. I, I'm on that business development committee. And the last one would be a soft factor, but I think probably one that is often way overlooked, and that's culture. I do a lot of things that seem maybe to some not important, but I know that, that they are vital to maintain that positive culture that that is the glue that keeps our company together and strong. For instance, our annual conference. It's an expensive thing to do to take everybody, for instance, this year to Puerto Vallarta to a five-star resort. Oh, but Nice. But do you want to come?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have a soft spot in my heart for birth of but love it.
0: You know, other things are, you know, it's something as simple as when there's conflicts happening to remind everybody to approach it with the right attitude. Um, it's so easy to get into a blame game with clients or tenants or inside the company, you know, to just get it off your chest. But there's a healthy way to do that. And then there's a very damaging way to do that. And when people get into that cycle, suddenly, it's like a toxic environment. And so I spend a lot of time making sure that those human frailties within the organization don't destroy the place. If you can imagine how many difficult things that everyone's experiencing with as many clients, tenants, and properties we manage, it would be easy to get out of control quickly.
1: So at the scale that you're at, it's fair to say that there are more things that you don't do than that you do do, and I think it's also fair to say that that's more causal than correlative. What did your journey look like, John? Like, if we rewind back to the beginning, did you have that phase where you were ever stuck and you were just like really like hands hands in it? Were there any real transition moments for you in that regard?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So the first one I would say is that. You have to know yourself well enough, I think, to know how to how to manage stress. So, for instance, there came a time where I was trying to do too many things. I'm fairly good at uh, a number of things in this company. And sometimes I think entrepreneurs default to, well, they can do it best. And they you want it to be done so well that you, you end up doing it yourself when what you should be doing is becoming a trainer. And what I have done is become a trainer. I am constantly training. Instead of taking the time to do it myself, I would rather take the time to train someone else to do it. They may not ever do it as well as I could myself, but if they can do it fairly well, that frees me up to focus on working on the business instead of in it, right? So that's one thing. I think that I came to a point where I physically could not do that much, just physically can't do it. And so I took a training mindset. I started training everything. I know some people would say the obstacle is I can't pay for it. What I did is I cut my salary in half and it was really hard. There was a time when I said, I'm not going to be able to live that lifestyle. And one of the hardest things for humankind to do is to go down the ladder. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. But but I cut my salary in half and I just focused on training and it enabled me to uh, scale the organization so that I could make even more. Uh, another one kind of going back to what I was mentioning on, on the stress level is, you have got to be able to not internalize all the difficult battles that go on on a daily basis. So many people, they absorb it. They let it throw their chi off, if you will. And I think that you have to learn to not let it do that. You don't allow it to. And that's very hard to do. Easier said than done. Something that really helped me was, um, you know, I did a, a business program at Harvard Business School. This is what I was
1: going to ask you
0: about. Yeah. Tell me about that. OPM. So, uh, first of all, Harvard's education is everything it's cracked up to be. <laughs> it really is. Uh, you know, for me, it was it was uh, you know a life changing mindset. And I think if I were to you know just give the conclusionary statement as to what it did for me is it taught me how to get from point A to point B. Often I think as business entrepreneurs, there's like fog between. You know, where you are and where you want to be. You just cannot see how to get there. You can see your goal, you know what you want, but you don't know how to get there. And so going to Harvard taught me how to get from point A to point B. It showed me how to scale. And and one cool thing about Harvard is they don't care what industry you're in. They don't care what it is. What they care about is can you make it big? You know, can you scale it into something impressive? And and so that's where we a lot of our discussion, our class discussion was. We did a bazillion case studies and you really start to pound it into your mind and heart how to do it. How long did that
1: program last for?
0: It was a three-year program.
1: Love it. So I've audited one OPM class and I realized within the first 30 seconds that it was legit when I saw Wolfgang Puck sitting a couple seats over. There there's some real ballers there that are in. The room. So, And when you say that it's all that it's cracked up to be, it it better be because it's not cheap, right? So you made the investment. Right. Yeah, Yeah, so making the financial investment. I really like what you said, though, about lowering your salary. It's never a question of, is it possible? It's about what are you willing to sacrifice? And it is crazy how going backwards is so painful. Whatever we've achieved is the new normal and is the new need level. No, I, I need that. It was, a, it was a, a perk and it was a bonus and an accomplishment before, but now it's like my base consumption need level, but it's always about what are you willing to sacrifice? Is it sleep? Is it time? Is it money? Resources are fungible. You got to pick one. John, I want to close with asking you the same question that I ask every single guest, and that is this. In your opinion, are entrepreneurs born or bred?
0: I'd say that maybe anyone can be an entrepreneur if you're honest with yourself. I think that sometimes I'm going to use we, we entrepreneurs aren't honest with ourselves about what we aren't. You know, we're very, very uh, bold about what we are, but we're not willing to recognize maybe the skill sets we don't have or the temperament we don't have. And there are certain things that I know that I don't have. And and in order to complement those things that I don't have that will absolutely be necessary for success. I rely on other people and I'm willing to share the profits with that individual. And so together we're entrepreneurs. Maybe one or the other of us can't be qualified as an entrepreneur, but together we are and we can succeed. That would be my answer, yeah.
1: Man, I love that. What you're bringing up for me there is just thinking about how we resolve cognitive dissonance. We can either discount the importance of those things that we're not great at and just say, well, it doesn't matter, it's not important or we can embrace a guilt trip that says, oh, I've got to be that. I've got to figure it out, as opposed to building a team around you that can do it. I really like that answer. I'm glad you came on the show. This has been an enlightening interview. I think folks are gonna have some significant takeaways. The website is northpointam.com. If you want to shoot John an email, contact me, Jordan at leadsimple.com. Hey, this has been great. The next time you're in Austin, uh, I'd love to uh, get together and break bread.
0: That'd be great. I'd love that, Jordan. All right. Be in touch.
1: Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Your feedback makes this a better show, and the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we mastermind with the best in the industry.